All right, guys, what's going on? Thanks for tuning in. So today uh, we've got Justin Harris joining us. So Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Um, he's going to be talking to us all about optimizing body composition for strength athletes in particular. So Justin, why don't you uh, just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, name is Justin Harris, uh, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. I'm a coach currently, a nutrition coach, strength contest coach, whatever you want to call it. Uh, my background is my original undergrad is in uh, kinesiology, exercise science. Uh, I went back to school, uh, did a second undergrad. I never really completed it in math and physics because I applied for grad school for physics. Uh, so, and then I got a, a master's in physics uh, with research in atomic physics. My bodybuilding background is 2004, Vista, Michigan, 2006, Junior USA, 2007, I uh, did the USA's and I took, I think, seventh, and that was kind of when I left bodybuilding. Powerlifting uh, was the 2007 APF 275-pound winner and over and uh, best lifter, and then the APF 2008 275, uh, uh, 275 and best lifter, and I totaled elite both uh, both meets. This was back with geared lifting, and my my I think it was just under 2,400 in 2008 for my total. Wow, that's impressive. That was yeah. With, that was with him. <laughs> that, that was not raw so <laughs> I, think I, I think i could have possibly hit a 2100 raw at my all-time best but probably a 2000 raw would have been around a, a good a good raw meat for me awesome and so more recently actually uh, you've been working with ben pollock uh, yeah. i think a lot of the listeners will know him because he's a really um high level power lifter but he's also someone who's kind of in that unique demographic where he's also insanely shredded and has the physique of a bodybuilder and he actually competes in bodybuilding so how, how long have you he will be in, in uh he will be in five days six days <laughs> yeah yeah so how long have you been working with him for oh geez uh we started i want to say 2017 even he was trying to make 181 for the u.s open uh and so we started trying to get him in a position where he could make weight to make 181 he had to pull out uh yeah, I think he maybe could have made it. It would have been, if he survived, he would have probably put up some amazing numbers, but it was <laughs> going to be really difficult. But he, he was just dealing with too many injuries. So he left, uh, and then he went, he left with me to do uh, classic uh, physique with John Meadows. Uh, and then that was last, not this past July, but the July before that, he competed in classic. And then immediately following that, I because I actually, John couldn't make it to the, I'm friendly with John. And so we don't have like a competitive nature as far as working with clients. And so he, John couldn't make it to the show. So I went to the show to help peak Ben properly. I didn't really do much, you know, just kind of verify what John was doing. Uh, and then that was North Americans. And then we started working immediately after that to move him to bodybuilding, which is where he's currently at. And he's five days out from the uh, NPC Nationals in Orlando this Saturday. Having worked with, with you know, several high caliber athletes, like I'm sure that you come across a lot of different um, people who have various approaches. And so what are some of the mistakes that a lot of strength athletes make when they're trying to alter their body composition, but still maintain their priority of, of strength? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's there's almost like you can't even consider them the same sport. I'm working with Julius Maddox right now, also, and so the way he's going to approach things and his body composition, at you know, I think he's 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 we've dropped him down about 18 pounds, but he's around two, 440 pounds right now. So what makes an 800 pound bencher is going to be an entirely different body composition than make what makes a hundred an all time world record holder at 181 pounds. So it's really you know, you really have to be more specific because it's, it's so, so different that it's, 
they're really not even related because what, what makes the difference is at the lower body weight is you, you need the maximum amount of contractile tissue per body mass. I mean, that's really what actually moves the, the weight is the, the contractile tissue, the muscle tissue, the myofibrillar tissue. So you want to maximize that. You actually want to minimize what kind of the bodybuilding version of muscle, which is the sarcoplasmic growth or sarcoplasmic tissue, which is really everything other than the actual contractile tissue, the blood volume, capillary density, glycogen stores, you know, intracellular water levels. And so, uh, but then at the heavier weight classes, you actually want to maximize that as well, especially if you're in super heavyweight, because those, those sarcoplasmic levels, uh, that, that's fluid and that's, that's leverage around the joint. So that creates compression around the joints, almost the way a, a sleeve would work or, or almost the way, uh, and then the, the more uh, fluid volume we have in, uh, in the extracellular space or even in the intracellular space, the, the better your leverages are going to be like on a bench press. So it's really very, very, very weight class dependent. But in general, I mean, the more muscle you have, the better you're going to do. I mean, you, there, there's, you know, some variance in that, but all things being equal, uh, wherever your current strength is, if you add, you know, 10 pounds of muscle, you're probably going to be stronger. Now, whether or not you can make the same weight class, you know, that, that, that comes into play. But it's really the difference at that very heavy weight classes. You want, you, obviously, you want to maximize muscle, but you actually want to maximize as much uh, compression between the body parts as possible, which comes from being really full and bloated. You really want that also on the lower weight classes, but you can't do that until after you make weight. So until you make weight, you kind of want to minimize that and maximize the myofibrillar, myofibrillar uh, percentage of muscle tissue compared to sarcoplasmic percentage. I love the distinction you made there because that, that actually is a really important thing. So I dropped uh, in 2020, I dropped <clears throat> from about 295 to 260 is where I'm at now. And so now I'm slowly creeping back up again uh, to, to get up to 300 and eventually a little heavier. And the biggest thing that I noticed was uh, my squat, the difference in my squat, just because of, you know, at the bottom, your thighs don't necessarily press into your gut the yeah. same way. <laughs> so um, that was a big difference. But for deadlift, I didn't really notice much. So it's, it's cool you actually made that distinction. So where would you cut that off then? Like, um, are you just talking super heavies or would that kind of still be something you're looking for? in, like, let's say the one Oh fives, uh, probably even the one Oh fives. Uh, I mean, you look at someone like an Eric Lillibridge, you know, he's clearly, he's not going to be as, as when, when I say sarcoplasmic, I mean, almost, I don't know a better word, bluffy sarcoplasmic is yeah. what I just described. You know, the, the non, the stuff that's in a muscle that is an actual muscle fiber, you know, he's still pretty watery and full and round, but he's not going to be as round as a bodybuilder like full Heath. So it's kind of Phil Heath. So it's kind of a mixture. They're really, it's hard to say the exact weight class, but I think definitely when you get below 242, once you get to about 220, what's the, I'm terrible with kilograms. What That's 105, 220, like, right? Yeah. It's like one, a hundred kilos or something like that. Yeah. When you, once you get, uh, I'll, I'll use pounds just because I'm a dumb American and it makes <laughs> it easier for me. And, and, and when I competed in APF, everything was in pounds. Once you get below 242, it tends to be a pretty rapid change into you want uh, the maximum myofibrillar, minimal sarcoplasmic. And if you look at the guys doing big, big numbers there, like Yuri this uh, this uh, last weekend with his 445. Yeah. But if you look at him, he's obviously heavily muscled, but he's not round uh, like a bodybuilder, you know? Mm -hmm. And so and Jamal kind of the same way. And so that's kind of, I think, around where the, the break point happens. And it's because when you get above about... Because even those guys, well, I shouldn't say because some of those guys really aren't cutting much weight. But you take someone like a 
uh, Janae Krozolowski, Krozolowski when, when she made, when she hit 220, uh, when she was Matt Krozolowski in 2008 at the APF uh, Worlds, or was that the WPO? Sorry, WPO Worlds. He was walking around at 260 to cut to 220. Uh, but a lot of these guys now are, are so dense as far as just pure muscle tissue without any of the water that they're really not cutting as much. But that's kind of about the limit. Once you get to 242, you start getting to the, the weight limit where it's very difficult to carry more than 240 pounds of pure muscle tissue. And if you look at competitive bodybuilders, that kind of shows you that if you take like a Ronnie Coleman when he won his first Mr. Olympia in uh, 1998, he was about 246 pounds, basically 246 pounds of pure muscle. So that's kind of where you reach the limit point to get heavier than 240. You're not going to get 240 pounds. You're not going to get above that weight from pure muscle tissue. It needs to be additional substance. So that's kind of where, where the weight is below the weight class is below 242. You're going to want to minimize the amount of fullness and maximize the amount of muscle tissue, you know, as ratio to your body, total body mass. When you get above that, you're going to want a little extra fullness because you, they're just, you're unable to be super lean and super dry and weigh that much. And so you want to you kind of start transitioning into that, that maximal bloat kind of feeling. Uh, in the old days with the geared lifting, it was even worse because as you got in the heavier weight classes, it became more a, a matter of how much uh, shit you could cram into the suit kind of, you know? And so it, there really was a point where if you, if you were at a weight class and you could add 20 pounds of body fat and remain in that weight class, you would do it because it would really, you could cram 20 more pounds because fat, could be compressed more into the suit than muscle could. So you'd get more rebound out of the suits with that extra fat than even probably if you had a 20 pounds of muscle. In the raw lifting, it's a little different, but still there's, it's very difficult. Even when you look someone like the, like a little bridge, who's about as heavily muscled as you can be, uh, he's still not super shredded at, at, at his body weight. So that's kind of the range to make, to kind of talk too long on the subject. No. And that, like I said, that's a really interesting distinction. Cause I don't think for a lot of people that's necessarily uh, intuitive that's not necessarily what you what you think right off the bat um especially when you're talking about that upper limit of like ronnie coleman being 246 and pretty much like maximizing genetic potential right there yeah if you, if um, you think you're if you think you're carrying more muscle than him you're probably <laughs> <more muscle. laughs> yeah so so i think most of the people who are listening to this would probably be you know 245 or or under most of them would probably be somewhere around that kind of middle weight range. Um, so what would the optimal body fat percentage be? And so let's say, because most powerlifters usually come into powerlifting with a suboptimal body composition in general, right? And they continue training and you know, they don't really focus on that. So I would kind of estimate a lot of the, a lot of the powerlifters that I see anyways, usually have around 20 pounds of fat to lose before they'd have like, you know, be around like 12 or 10% or somewhere kind of in that, you know, relatively lean range. So how would you approach altering their body composition without impacting their strength negatively for both men and women? And would there be any specific differences in the approach between males and females? Yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's actually a lot involved in this question uh, and a lot more than, than people probably think at first glance. One is you think, well, clearly you want as low body fat as possible because then the maximum amount of your, of your body weight is actual muscle tissue, which is actually able to move the weight. But there's a problem with that. One, from a hormonal standpoint, is that uh, the, the, the male body is optimized for, for hypertrophy and strength and muscle growth in about the 8 to 12% body fat range. Above 12% body fat in your natural testosterone production, which may or may not matter for powerlifters, uh, starts decreasing. But even worse, the aromatization to estrogen starts rapidly increasing. Uh, and if, if 
and I say this lots of times in podcasts, but this is, if this doesn't really seem to make sense to you, it's really, you can look back to when you're early twenties and everyone had a couple friends or something who were pretty overweight, who had clearly gone through puberty, but they maybe had, you know, some, some, some man boobs and not a real thick beard and no real chest hair. And the reason for that is their higher body fat through puberty decreased their testosterone production. And then on top of that, it also increased their conversion to estrogen. So they have more estrogenic symptoms. So you don't want to be above 12%. But the problem is when you get below about 8%, the same thing starts happening. Your testosterone level starts decreasing. uh, And so you don't, so really you want to be somewhere in that range, but on the low end of that range. Now, what if you're supplementing with exogenous testosterone and none of that matters? Why do you not want to go below 8%? And you, and you may, you might, but the problem is most of these guys aren't stepping on the platform at, the, at their weigh-in weight. And, uh, and muscle weight actually doesn't dry out quite as well. It's tough. Muscle weight dries out quite a bit, but if you're highly myofibrillar muscle, it's really dry muscle. It's not, blue, it's not like a bodybuilder, very watery muscle. So it doesn't dry out that much. But what does dry out really well is fat. And so you don't mind having... There's, if you take a 200 pound person with 20 pounds of body fat, that's 10% body fat. So you might think, well, they're carrying 20 pounds of body fat. That's a lot. The problem is that 20 pounds of body fat probably allows you to drop as much as 30 pounds of body weight to make weight where being, uh, being 5% body fat and it's only having 10, uh, 10 pounds of body fat does you, you lose five pounds of weight, but you don't, really um you don't change your ability to drop how am i wording this uh you want enough body fat to 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 keep safety around the joints keep hormones optimized uh but also high enough so that you're able to drop a lot of body water to make weight and if you get too lean you're not able to make the big drops i mean some of these guys that you know 181 uh are weighing well over 200 pounds walking around weight you know and if you're uh if you're 200 pounds Say you're 200 pounds uh, with 20 pounds of body fat. You'd say, well, just lose that 20 pounds of body fat. You'll make 181. Well, you won't be as strong with zero body fat, but you will be able to drop 20 pounds of water. Now, if you lose five pounds of body fat and now you're 195, but much, much leaner, that doesn't make it really any easier to drop that 15 pounds of water weight to make weight, despite being five pounds less fat, because that five pounds of fat is really watery tissue that's easily dehydrated. If that, I don't know if that, I didn't think, really explain that very clearly, but... That's no, kind of where it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, so you want, I mean, you need to be lean, probably optimal is probably in the lower weight classes around 8%, maybe 10% body fat. Lower than that, and you're, yes, you're decreasing your walking around weight by decreasing the amount of body fat you carry, but you don't really, imp- you actually uh, decrease your ability to lose water weight to make weight. So it's kind of a wash. Mm-hmm. And then above 12%, you're just carrying too much fat. And so that kind of leads into a question that I was going to ask a little bit later on about the hormonal profiles of athletes at different body fat percentages. So, mm-hmm. so why do you get that increase in aromatization and the, the decrease in, in um, I guess, free testosterone when you have a higher body fat percentage versus being in that 8 to 12% range? You know, I really, I wish I would remember this from school better. I, I just know that it occurs higher. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's intrinsic to, I'm assuming it's intrinsic to, to the body fat. Cause that's, that's largely why women have higher estrogen or higher estrogen levels and higher body fat. Estrogen and body fat are just really closely linked. <clears throat> higher body fat just increases estrogen levels, higher estrogen levels, increases body fat levels. So they're kind of correlated that way. Um, I, I kind of got lost. What was the, what was the original question? 
Oh, like what, what, what the reason was. Oh yeah. For... I can't, you know, I need to, I, I, I'm a, I'm a bad coach. Cause I should know that. Cause I, I taught <laughs> that information all the time, but they are just, they are just linked. I don't remember the exact pathway. Just know that higher circulating levels of estrogen, uh, de- increase the aromatization of, of floating of testosterone levels. And I, it does believe it also increases steroid hormone binding globulin also, mm-hmm. which will then decrease free testosterone, which is probably probably linked to the pathway that it all happens but right so if you were to take on a new athlete let's say they're you know uh beginner intermediate how would you approach their training and development well i don't i mean it depends on where where they're at <clears throat> for I'll, I'll simplify and say what if, if our goal is to to add add size and strength to add muscle i say we we don't worry about body weight uh Body weight just happens as a natural occurrence of adding muscle. If you're trying to add body weight, you're almost guaranteed to add fat. And the reason is, is that you can only add muscle at, at really about 10 or 12 pounds a year long term. That's about the maximal rate you can. And so if you're trying to add scale weight, you're just going to add body fat. So what I try to do with people is we try to do two things. One, we try to turn you into a food processing machine. The more clean, good, whole quality foods we can get going through your body, the more chance for protein synthesis we have, the better recovery we're going to have, the more, ch- more likelihood of improved body composition. So we try to continually increase the food intake that you're ha- in- taking without getting fat. And then the next thing is just try to get stronger in the gym. And so it's really, it seems obvious, but if you're, if you're eating 7,000 calories a day, not fat and really, really strong, you're going to be, you're going to be adding muscle. You know, there's just no way around it. So that, that's kind of what we do if we're trying to add muscle. Now, if you're trying to not add muscle, uh, and, and, make, and stay in a weight class, but it continue and improve strength, then the, the approach is entirely different because our calorie intake is, is really reduced, but we focus our calories really fine-tunedly around the workout to maximize the performance of the workout. And that's a big thing is there's a difference between eating to fuel strength and growth, growth and eating to fuel a workout. And an example of this would be, because that, that doesn't quite make sense, but a clear example of that would be uh, would be running or doing cardio. If you're doing cardio to burn fat, you don't want to drink any sugar while you're doing the cardio because the, the sugar is going to be used as energy, you know? So if I'm in the gym doing cardio to burn fat, I'm not going to drink Gatorade while I'm doing cardio. If, but if I'm running a race, like a marathon, and I want to improve my performance, I'm going to drink some kind of carbohydrate, electrolyte light drink because that improves my performance. So you always have to really, and people don't, I don't think people really analyze this. You have to decide, am I training for performance today or am I training to create a result from this training. If I'm trying to hit certain numbers in the gym, then I want to maximize my performance. If I'm trying to maximize the results from the gym, it's a totally different approach. If I'm trying to build muscle, what builds muscle might not be what increases performance that day. And an example would be, if I'm trying to build muscle, I probably want to have a really high calorie for in my diet, it's a really high carbohydrate diet on a training day where we might even use something like insulin which would maximize amino acid uptake, maximize uh, glycogen storage, maximize anabolism of the workout. The problem is is that a really high carbohydrate diet causes lethargy, uh, insulin's a mild diuretic, increases sodium reabsorption. So you might not have the best workout, but whatever workout you have, the anabolic effects of that workout are maximized from that diet. Now, if I'm trying to actually improve my workout, the high carb day would happen the day before the workout because then I'd have all those glycogen stores to fuel the workout. So it's, it's something I think people don't really think is, am I, am I trying to have a good workout or am I trying to get something out of this workout? And they're not always the same thing. You know, it's really funny you say that because a lot of people talk about structuring your, like 
calorie cycling, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, lower calories on, on your recovery days and higher calories on your, on your training days. And I actually found that I like the opposite where I actually like to stack up calories on my, exactly because I feel so much better and, and I never really had a good reason for it. Like I kind of was like, okay, well, you know, I'm probably uh, replenishing my glycogen stores. I'm probably doing all of these things, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's still things that are kind of like, I guess, debated and a little bit murky, but it's, so it's kind of funny that you say that um, because it's kind of pretty reflective of of my own experience. So one of the things that you mentioned actually was uh, really prioritizing clean foods Mm-hmm. And that's something that this year in particular, for me anyways, I've never, I've always dieted, but I've never really been like, okay, I actually want to get to about 10% body fat before. Um, and so that was something that for me, I really noticed a big difference with versus having kind of intermittent, like let's say even like 20% or 30% of my calories throughout the day are coming from like, you know, fun foods, like let's say some low calorie ice cream or something like that. Mm-hmm. I actually noticed that when I cut all of that out, and it was just 100% clean foods, the difference was actually night and day. And, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's just because I wasn't accounting for some of the things, maybe some of the calories or what was going on. But I actually noticed like probably the most dramatic difference in body composition than I ever have before in my life. And so can you speak to that? Like why, why is that, you know, outside of like precision or measurement error? Because I'm pretty precise with how I track everything. Like everything's made, everything's managed. But I noticed such a dramatic difference, and I've noticed that as well in, in several of my athletes. So what sort of rationale or explanation would there be for something like that? Well, we should be able to, we should be able to track it. I mean, we could take two examples. Let's track a, let's track a meal with a uh, kind of a, a poor protein source and a really high sugar source. Say we, we, just, we, we need protein and carbs, so we get two boxes, two bag, small bags of Skittles. That's 100 grams of sugary carbs, and we drink a protein shake, 50 grams of protein. So that's meal, 50 grams of protein, 100 grams of carbs. <clears throat> and then next we'll compare a 50 gram protein meal, 100 grams of carbs from different sources. So this source, we drink the 50 gram shake of whey isolate, which means it's digested in like an hour and a half, two hours. Well, if you look at the rate of growth of people, you'll find, and you can track anybody, pick the person who grew the fastest you've ever seen, Nick Walker, Big Ramy, Ronnie Coleman, anyone, and track their growth rate over like five, six, seven, eight years. And you'll see it maximizes at about 10 to 15 pounds a year or 12 pounds a year, which is about a pound a month. Well, if you keep breaking that down, by the, you get to the day, it's about 25 grams a day of new muscle tissue or about one gram an hour. So if you're drinking a 50 gram protein shake and it's digested in two hours, only two grams of that protein had any chance of actually be converted to new muscle tissue. 48 grams of that is, gets turned to a sugar or who knows what, it's, it's not being used to muscle. So right there, we lost, we lost you know, uh, 98, 99% of, or 96% of the, the value of that protein shake because it got digested so quickly. And the same thing with the sugar, they, that uh, we take that 100 grams of, of Skittles and it gets in our bloodstream right away. It goes right into the small intestine, gets into the bloodstream, blood sugar levels spike. Now, if we're depleted in glycogen, a lot of that's going to get uh, converted to liver and muscle glycogen. But the problem is when there's a huge influx of blood sugar, not all of that can go to uh, uh, liver glycogen muscle glycogen right away so the body has to do something with it so what does it do it goes with acetyl-CoA and tr- converts it to triglycerides or fatty acids through the fatty acid pathway and then gets stored as fat you know and so we have 
So we have 50 grams of whey isolate and 100 grams of carbs from sugar. We have some glycogen storage, a small amount of protein synthesis, but most of the protein didn't get used for protein synthesis and a large portion of the sugar didn't probably get stored as glycogen. It might've got stored as fat if the calories were in a surplus. Now let's take the exact same meal and let's take 50 grams of protein from a lean meat protein source, a, co a complete protein uh, that's gonna digest really slow and 100 grams of carbs, like two cups of rice, roughly white rice, a relatively low, a slow digesting thing. Now that, now that 50 grams of protein, say it's like a flank steak, that's going to digest for 10 hours, 12 hours maybe. And I've said this before on podcasts also, everyone at some point in their life got a stomach ache, got sick maybe as a kid and threw up and saw little chunks of meat and thought, the hell did I eat steak? Was that yesterday? You know? So we have the whey protein gets digested in two hours. The steak might take two days before it's fully digested. So that trickling of amino acids and protein synthesis can happen for that entire digestion period. Where with the whey isolate, you had two hours and then it's gone. And then after that, there's no more protein synthesis. That steak's floating around for hours and hours and hours able to synthesize new muscle tissue. And the same with the carbohydrates. The, the rice goes into your small intestine. Well, you can't digest complex carbohydrates or they can't enter the, the bloodstream. They have to be converted to, to simple sugars. So you have this big complex of, you know, of, uh, of a carbohydrate that this little sugar gets pulled off, this sugar gets pulled off, and that goes into the into the bloodstream. So blood sugar never spikes. So uh, liver glycogen and muscle, muscle glycogen is always slowly being replenished, slowly re being replenished. But blood, blood sugar never spikes so much that some of that sugar needs to go through the fatty acid pathway and, and gets converted to fatty acid. So now we have two exact same meals, 50 grams of protein, 100 grams of carbohydrates. One of them we minimize the risk that the carbohydrates will be turned to fat and we maximize the potential of the amino acids to be converted to muscle tissue. That's the steak and rice. The next meal, we, we've minimized the potential that the protein convert to muscle, the way isolate, and we've maximized the potential that the carbs get stored as fat. So that's two, that's, I mean, we just track two exact meals as far as calories and got two totally different results as far as body composition. So as far as working with, uh, with an athlete, like I, it was, it was interesting that you said you don't specifically focus on, uh, putting on muscle just because the process is very, very slow. And so it kind of does happen a little bit more naturally if you just focus on like kind of performance and some of the other metrics. So when you are like structuring a diet, I know that you said you, you structure your diet, um, you know, whether it's based on performance or whether it's based on, I guess the outcome in, in terms of body composition, um, but what sort of strategies do you use to, I guess, make hunger and things like that a little bit more manageable? The, so the, the worst thing you can do when trying to add size is drown your appetite out. I mean, when you hear people talk about, you know, I, I, I don't eat for taste. I eat your, you know, because uh, I eat for fuel or whatever. That's great and all. But if you're not hungry, there's, there's only so many times you can force feed food you're not interested in eating. So the worst thing you can do is just start shoving food down and drown it, drown your, your appetite out. What you want to do is you want two things. You want your appetite to grow and you want your calories to grow, but you don't want them to cross. You always want to keep calories just below. So you, as your appetite grows, you're always towing that line of saturating your appetite versus triggering a hunger response. One of the ways I do that is on in my diets on my off training days are pretty low. They're low carbohydrate and pretty low calorie in general. We make sure that there's enough protein and fat to make sure that any protein synthesis that's asked can occur. And we make sure that, you know, there's no major calorie de deficiencies where there's going to be a risk in performance or anything, but we, they're pretty 
hypocaloric in most cases, meaning that you're eating less calories than you burn on those off days. And what that does is it triggers an appetite response. It stimulates leptin and ghrelin, uh, the hunger hormones that, that are going to allow you to eat the food we want to eat on the medium and high carb days. Now, we also have on the high carb days, we have really high carbohydrate intake, which stimulates insulin production, which is an appetite stimulant also. And so we're, we're always working on, on the bookends of the high carbohydrate days. We have a natural stimulation where the food is stimulating appetite, but then we don't run too many of them because that would, no matter how much food stimulation there is with insulin, when you're, when you're full, you're full, you're going to lose your appetite. And then we have the off days where we eat kind of a hypocaloric diet where we're, we're stimulating an appetite response because calorie intake is down. And then our medium days, which is the more majority of our training days, would be a more normal uh, approach to eating, which would be slightly hypercaloric of a, of a mix of macronutrients. And so have you found that improving an athlete's body composition has any sort of impact on their actual recovery? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. It's not it, – it's person-dependent, meaning if you improve your body composition, your recovery will improve. It doesn't mean that if you have a better comp body composition than me or someone else, your recovery will naturally be better. But in general, yeah, when you have – uh, and I don't, I, I can't say that it's actually it, the body composition that's doing it. It's more likely the, the nutrients that are causing the improved body composition that's improving recovery. But yeah, definitely you'll be able to train more. You'll be able to train harder. You'll be able to recover faster and you'll be able to repair more of the broken proteins that are, that are caused from the training. So more of the behaviors around the diet that, that are leading to the body composition are also facilitating better yeah, I would recovery. Say it's, yeah, it's the diet that's doing it. The body composition is a result of the diet also, but I don't right. know that the body composition is not. In some cases it will. I mean, because if, if your body composition is in an optimal range, like we talked about or, earlier, your hormone profile is going to be optimized, which is going to improve mm -hmm. recovery also. And so when you're dieting an athlete down, um, you know, let's say they want to get to the maybe the weight class below, or they're just carrying too much weight to actually compete in their current weight class. Like what approach do you utilize to make sure that they don't actually lose any performance um, in their training sessions leading while they're leading up to, to their meet? It's difficult because they, they might, but what we do is you, you have to find the, you, you're always towing a line. You have to tow the line where you're supplying the maximal amount of nutrients you can to fuel this training session while making sure that you're in a strong enough calorie deficit to decrease body weight into a point where you're within weight cut target, you know? And so, because you, you, there's two different, there's two different stages of making weight. There's making weight because you, you, you need to be in a certain body weight where you're kind of your, uh, you, your, your, your target point of being able to cut water is. If you're above that, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to cut water. So you need to get to, to that point. And that's the first stage that's going to happen in the 10 or 12 weeks before the meet. And then the final week is a totally different thing. That's the water cut. So what you're really trying to make sure that your nutrient intake is timed so that your high carbohydrate meals are in are taken in in a state of glycogen depletion, meaning your de is depleted of muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, as you can be, and you want that to happen during training and after, so that you aren't completely depleted during training because that's going to negatively affect your training. You want the training to cause the depletion, and then when you are depleted, what that allows you to do is then eat the higher carbohydrates, and you can actually eat a diet that's hypercaloric, meaning more calories than you burn, which would normally store as fat, but because there are carbohydrates in the diet, 
uh, and you're glycogen depleted, those excess calories will still be stored, but they'll be stored as glycogen rather than fat, which then you'll use in the next training session. And so that's, you're always kind of towing that line of you want to be as non-depleted as possible at the time of your workout. You're never going to be fully, you know, if you're making weight or cutting weight, you're going to be depleted to some level, but you want the maximum amount of glycogen stored as possible during your workout where the workout then depletes it, which then it's basically as depleted as possible from, from ever, from the end of that workout until the next point when you're trying to re replenish it a little bit to fuel the next training session. So it's really, it's always just touch and go. And it's, you know, there's no like set amount and you see how, how much someone depletes and how, and you're always constantly adjusting it, but that's the approach. So I just kind of wanted to, to touch back on something you said earlier that I thought was really interesting and actually pretty important was uh, kind of managing your hunger through utilizing that calorie cycling approach or potentially some other approaches as well to make sure that your hunger, you know, is kind of staying in, in parallel with, uh, with your, your calorie requirements. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I thought was really interesting actually, because there, there was a time when I think like when I first started lifting weights, I was about 165 pounds. And then I started weightlifting and it was actually really interesting because very much like you said, I wasn't trying to put on weight. I was just lifting like six days a week doing Olympic weightlifting. And over the span of, I think like two years, I put on 30 pounds and I didn't even know it until mm -hmm. my coach told me, he's like, buddy, when you started, you were this much and now you're this. He's like this ex-Olympic Russian <laughs> coach dude. So he was like very, very serious, very stern. And, and it was funny. But then after that, I tried gaining weight on my own and I got up to about 220 and I just could not get past that. Like I was just stuck. And, and then psychologically, I had to get over that barrier. So I just was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to eat anything and everything that I can. I got super fat, but I got up to like 270. Mm -hmm. and, and since then, I haven't really had a problem uh, gaining or losing weight or anything like that. So I think that was a, an important psychological hurdle to overcome. But if I had to do it again, it sounds like the approach that you're talking about is much, much more effective. And you kind of avoid a lot of these like... Um, well, one, gaining, you know, a substantial amount of body fat. And mm -hmm. then two, just kind of doing a bunch of damage to your body because my tendons and joints just felt terrible yeah. for a long time. But I, I kind of wanted to, to, I guess, go into that a little bit more. Like, how do you track your athlete's progress if you're always just kind of trying to pace those two things so that they're, they're, may they maintain their linear relationship? It's tough. You're looking for trend lines because you can't go week to week because like we said, the maximum amount of muscle growth in a week, if you're a genetic freak who's going to grow faster than any human in history is still only about a quarter of a pound a week, you know, a quarter pound, that's four ounces of water. So you can gain, you know, you can gain a quarter pound on the scale by just drinking half a cup of water before stepping on the scale, you know? So it's really the scale we're looking for trend lines, meaning, you know, over months to three months to six months to a year, we're looking for a steady increase without body fat increase, you know? So we're really using pictures for me primarily as the week to week. And then also your, so we're tracking basically your appetite, your hunger levels, your energy levels, your training intensity, your weight, and then the photos. And all of those kind of paint a pretty good picture of what's going on. I mean, you always have to know what, you always have to adjust for water retention and things like that and know what their diet was the day before the photos. But that's, I mean, that's, that's really what you're doing is you're looking for long-term trend lines and you don't really even need to do that. It's really pretty simple. If you, if you're, you're always looking to increase food intake without getting fat. Uh, if you do that long-term muscle growth is going to happen no matter what you're, you're not going to be eating 7,000 calories a day at 8% body fat and not be jacked. It's just not, it's not possible. So I, I kind of want to touch on what you said about the gaining the weight really quickly. 
And that, that actually, there's two, there really is two ways. There's the, the least efficient way to, to affect hunger and, and gain weight is actually if you do gain a lot of weight really quickly, your appetite tends to adjust even though you've gained fat. And so you'll always be able to hold that higher weight easier. Uh, the, the problem is, is that you have to lose the fat at some point in the process. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in most cases, and it's really kind of, yeah, kind of counterintuitive, but the, the, the fastest way to add size long-term is to diet which doesn't really make sense. But what you're doing is you take an eight to 12 week period to diet really, really, really hard. You're going to get a rapid, rapid rate of muscle growth afterwards. So you take someone who's trying to grow like this and who doesn't diet and maybe their growth is slowly increasing like this. And so a year later, you know, you go from here to here. Well, you take the other person and you diet them really hard and their body weight goes like this. But then the rapid rate of growth is so fast that the growth kind of goes like this. And then at the end of the year, it, they're actually carrying more muscle mass because of the diet. And this is most obvious in, in, in bodybuilders actually, and specifically in bodybuilders when they turn professional. And there's this weird phenomenon where all the professional bodybuilders are dramatically larger than the top amateur bodybuilders. And the amateur bodybuilders become dramatically larger once they turn professional. And it's like, well, why does this happen? No one's doing anything different. They're taking the same supplements, doing the same workout, eating the same foods. What happens? Well, when you're trying to turn pro, you traditionally only compete in one bodybuilding contest a year. Once you turn pro, you have to qualify for Olympia, you have to set aside sponsors, and so you have to compete multiple times a year. What happens is anyone who's dieted really, really hard knows that the best growth you ever get is the period of a month or two months after that diet. Well, when you're competing multiple times a year, you get that huge rebound growth after each contest, whereas an amateur, you only get it once a year. And so, you know, you can't really take that and correlate it directly with powerlifting because no powerlifter wants to diet down to bodybuilding body fat levels four times a year, but they will definitely increase their rate of growth, their body composition, and their, and their ultimately their strength if they do take time to diet hard once or twice a year. A really good example of this, if anyone wants to look up online, is John Heck. He's a strongman competitor. He's a strength coach at North Carolina. Uh, if you find him on Instagram, we worked together. He dieted on a little bit on his own, but you can see he went from like 340 uh, with, you know, maybe 20 or 25% body fat. And then a year later, I want to say he was roughly around the same weight at about 12% body fat and looks like a dramatic, like a totally different person. And what caused that was a, he dieted down to the high two, 200s, 289, 290, something like that at very, very low body fat. And then the rebound after that brought him back, not only to new muscle size, but new body weight increases while also being a lower body fat. That's wild. It, it's funny because anecdotally, like I, I've definitely noticed the same thing. And it's funny because like you might be dieting and let's say you, you are in like, I don't know, a 500 calorie deficit or, or something along those lines. And let's say you're finishing your diet. If you're finishing your diet, you're probably going to be quite a bit lower than that. But um, the amount that you can actually increase above without even seeing any change in your body weight is pretty dramatic. Like right now I'm up, I think, almost 400 calories higher than what my, what my calculated maintenance would be. Mm -hmm. And I'm still like on a downward trend almost, yeah. you know, of like 0.2% per week or 0.1% per week, which is interesting. So I actually need to up it a little bit, but I'm kind of trying to do it very, very slowly. That's the perfect way to do it. Cause then and, you, you, you tow that line and you continue yeah. improving your body composition while your food intake is going up. There's, yeah. like, there's nothing better. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of what I'm experiencing right now is, is very similar, like parallels exactly what you're saying, where the calorie increases that I'm able to make 
are so much more than I thought because I'm doing them very, very slowly and my body's kind of adapting and it's able to handle and, and I guess like delegate the, the fuel sources to more efficient areas. Um, and then simultaneously, like my hunger kind of is going in parallel as well. So it's really interesting that you're saying that as well. Can, um, I, uh, can I touch on that even deeper? There's, yeah, for there's sure. Even more, there's even uh, a deeper like uh, empirical evidence or uh, research evidence of that is that uh, research data shows that metabolism doesn't really slow with calorie restriction diets. People think your metabolism will slow. It slows eventually, you know, and we can use like the Ethiopian, you know, term. It does slow eventually. You, you know, people in Ethiopia don't eat very much and they don't die. Why? Because their metabolism is so slow. But it, that slows much, much, much slower than people would think. So much so that in studies where you follow someone on a really calorie restricted diet for like 12 or 16 weeks, there is no discernible decrease in uh, metabolism outside of the natural loss of metabolism from them losing body weight and burning less calories just with their daily motion. Yeah. But they're, if you put them in a room and didn't let them move and just measured their, their release of body heat to get their metabolism, their metabolism really wouldn't decrease even after 12 weeks of a hard diet. So dieting doesn't really decrease your metabolism very much, but you are able to increase your metabolism much more dramatically while gaining. And so you kind of get, so while what happens is when you're dropping body fat, your metabolism doesn't really drop, maybe a little bit. But then as you're adding body size, your metabolism keeps increasing. So you keep going like that and you can see you can reach the point where your metabolism reaches such a high level that you're almost able to eat whatever you want without getting fat. And that's one of the reasons when people wonder why some of these really, really elite lifters stay so lean and especially elite bodybuilders stay so lean all the time. And that's really what it is. It's because of that, that process repeated multiple times, dropping weight and dropping body fat to make make weight for a, a meat decreases your body fat, but doesn't really decrease your metabolism very much. And then gaining it back up increases your metabolism quite a bit, which that, so you're, you're constantly setting a new baseline. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really counterintuitive because you think I want to get big and strong. And the best way to get big and strong long-term is to get small and, and lean right now. But you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And, and I mean, it, it definitely potentiates the muscle growth later because all the signaling is like, Oh my God, I'm dying. Yeah. You need to give me more food. And so you just yeah. become like a sponge for, for absorbing nutrients and, and being super efficient with shuttling them as well. And mm. uh, that's, that's actually a really interesting point. So like I wrote an article on metabolic adaptations and like talked about kind of proton leak and, and different efficiencies. And it was the exact same thing with all the research that's out there. And then I think the person who wrote, the most comprehensive article that I've seen on that was actually either Greg Knuckles or Eric Trexler. Mm. It, it's, it's a really, really well-written article that talks about exactly what you said and kind of mentioned essentially the exact same things. Um, so yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's the first time I, I really don't even feel comfortable saying that because I've only read two studies that really show that. Cause I was always under the assumption that, you know, your metabolism decreases pretty, you know, you diet and you get a metabolism decrease and you, you know, you grow and you get a metabolism increase and I figured they kind of you know correlated pretty well but then the the two more recent studies I read that showed really no discernible decrease in metabolism even with really really strong calorie restrictions outside of obviously you know they weighed less so they burned more calories when they moved but other than that it didn't seem that their real meta metabolic rate decreased with the with the reduction of calories yeah and a lot of that was due uh, from from the papers that I found a lot of that was due to um, like their, their leptin sensitivity and their body fat stores. Uh, so mm. that was a big regulator of, of like appetite and, and also just even their, their metabolism in general. And so once you reintroduce calories, 
um, you know, neat goes back to normal, um, their metabolic rate kind of upregulates. And so once you kind of account for a lot of these, you know, confounding variables, they end up being pretty damn similar. So there doesn't mm -hmm. really seem to be that, that big difference, like the metabolic damage people are talking about. They, yeah, they yeah. kind of start changing the terminology. So now it's like metabolic adaptation, which is an absolutely normal adaptation that, which is exactly kind of what you were saying. Yeah. And, um, it's funny too, because a lot of the, the time where you're talking about these elite athletes who are eating 7,000 calories and they're crazy shredded. I mean, that took a long time, you know, especially if you're doing things very, very slowly, you know, and you're like upping it by like, I'm just going to choose a hypothetical number, let's say 150 calories. And you're making small incremental jumps like that. And so your body's ramping up slowly over time. That might take years to get you yeah. to the point where you're eating thousands of calories more than you were previously and you're like big and shredded whereas like sometimes guys are like oh man i think i can do that let's just add on 750 calories right yeah. now and <laughs> speed up the process and it's like oh, it doesn't really work like that yeah so, i always say in this sport in any in strength sport or physique sport or anything like that you have to you you're never going to reach your goals because the goals take so long so you have to learn to love the process because what yeah. happens is if you really love the process 10 years passes you know in 10 years it's going to be 10 years from now and 10 years happens really fast and so if you really love the process, you, trusting it and letting those 10 years happen, when you get to that 10th year, you, you reap all the benefits and all the goals. But if you try to force it, you, you're, you're just never going to get there. Mm -hmm. So when you are dieting an athlete down then, like, what, what does that usually look like? like what, what are we talking about in terms of timelines? And then what do you do directly after the diet as well? Uh, well, there's two different pros. For, a, for like a bodybuilding contest, I like to diet for 16 weeks. For a... Uh, Powerlifting meat, I don't like to really do uh, uh, like a meat prep longer than about 10 weeks, but, but that's kind of more the training aspect of it. The diet portion can start earlier. Really, I, don't, I wouldn't recommend trying to lose more than two pounds of body fat a week, especially if you're trying to hold strength. If you're trying to maintain strength, I really wouldn't recommend losing more than one or 1.5 pounds of body fat a week. So you kind of pick your target. What's my body weight need to be when I'm in, within, within you know, gunning range of, uh, of making weight with a water cut? And then you know, decide the number of weeks for that. So that's really what I, what I do. We just kind of, you try to just keep it as mathematical as possible. You know, a one pound drop of fat a week is about 500 calorie. And so we, if we need to drop 15 pounds of body fat to, to be in target of making weight, then we, you know, maybe 12 weeks or, you know, 10 weeks if we're doing one and a half pounds a week. What I do then after the diet is, so if you've had a really hard diet and you're looking to slingshot that, you're not trying to make the same weight class. You're trying to jump up a weight class, let's say. What I do is a meat, well, after the meat, you know, obviously you're going to do all your, your bloating and everything after making weight to refill. But then I give you 36 hours to eat whatever you want. And then for five days, we do five consecutive high carb days, which you'll already have from the diet. Five consecutive high carb days with the last meal of the day replaced with a cheat meal. And then by then, when that's over, it's the seventh day after the meat. So at that point, you've had 36 hours of picking out, five days of really high calories, really high carbohydrates with a cheat meal each day. You should have all that out of your system and be ready to be on a structured diet. And from that point, we pick a diet that we think is slightly hypercaloric, which is going to, you know, a little bit more than you're burning. And we just start building from there. But that kind of rebound out of it, that seven-day protocol is pretty standard for most of my clients. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how you say that as well, because a lot of the times I think when people are approaching dieting, they, they have a hard time with like the termination of a diet mm -hmm. where it's over and they're like, okay, the goal is not to lose weight anymore. The goal is to either maintain or gain or whatever it might be. And, and they just kind of want to stay there, right? And mm -hmm. so the fact that you do that just like, 
allowing people to kind of eat whatever the hell they want, I think is really important psychologically. Like what, what have you, have you always done that? Or is that something? Yeah, well, you have, you have to, you're going to pay the piper. You got effed up hunger hormones. You know, you're, you're depleted of glycogen. You're de you, you, everything in your body is telling you to eat. You, you can fight it as much as you want. You're not going to win. You got to pay the piper. So what, what this came about is just really more kind of trial and error with, you know, hundreds and thousands of clients over almost 20 years of doing this. I found that if you try to get people, you know, do a reverse diet where immediately after make after the diet's over, you just slowly start increasing. It's not going to work because as soon as their mind isn't focused on that losing weight and the idea of being able to eat comes in, they're going to cheat. So yeah. if you, but if you give them 36 hours, you know, the, the, and when I say 36 hours, I'm thinking like, you know, you do a power after meet, you have the rest of the night after the meet, or you do a bodybuilding show, you have the rest of the night after the show, and then you have the whole next day. And then it's Monday, the day after that. And then the five high carb days are all the, with the foods from the diet. So it's all clean food. So you're not really eating junk. You're eating probably better than you were at some point in the off season before you started the diet. But the food volume is so high that you're able to kind of stay on plan because you're not so hungry. And you also know that the last meal of that day, you get to eat whatever you want. So you're able to stay on plan because you know that that free meal is there. And then you do that for five days in a row. By that point, you've essentially paid the piper. Your glycogen stores are saturated. Your hunger hormones are more are muted a little bit. You know, you're still going to be pretty hungry, but they're not insatiable. You're, you have some, some sanity, you know, and, and you're not so depleted that your body is no longer just begging for nutrients. And so at that point, you're in a much better mental space to be able to handle a strict diet again. So do you ever utilize... Um like planned intermittent diet breaks. So let's say you are dieting an athlete for 12 to 16 weeks. Do you, would you ever take an approach like, let's say two weeks on one week off, two weeks on one week off. I know I, I've seen some research on, on that and it does extend the timeline quite a bit, but people yeah. usually tend to see a little bit better results. Yeah. I don't like to, uh, I, cause well, I'm working with typically a specific class of person where the most of the people I work with are fairly high level and in 16 weeks is longer than they're going to need to be in, in, in shape, you know? So, right. so I'm not, I'm not trying to, if there's when I'm, when I'm thinking of my typical client, it's not very, very often. Now I do have some, you know, gen pop people where they, they need to lose 200 pounds or something, and there's no way you're going to drop 200 pounds in a straight diet. So in that case, what we'll do is we will do something like that. We'll do it. We'll diet for a period. And I never set like an exact amount because you're not working with a robot. What works best on paper is works best on paper you're not working with paper, you know, you're working with a human. And so you always have to deal with what works best scientifically and on paper and what's also going to jive with their, their mental state, you know? And so we'll, we'll do diet for some period of time. And I have a couple of clients right now where we're kind of in that process of, okay, you know, I know this is getting hard. Would you like to transition out for three weeks? You know, and they'll say, no, let me get one more week. And then finally they reach the point where they say, yeah, hey, I'm sorry, man, I broke down, you know, I ate $200 worth of McDonald's last night. I know I, I know I said I could make it another week. I just can't. And I say, okay, that's fine. Let's do this. You have that McDonald's. Let's run a couple high days. Now we're going to transition to this for two weeks and then we'll get back at it. But for most of my competitive clients, no. And the reason is, is because none of them are is out of shape that they would wouldn't be able to get in shape in a, in a short enough period of time that, that it would be considered one diet. We're kind of coming to the end here. And so I always like to ask people this question. What's one opinion you have that either is a little controversial or isn't necessarily a hundred percent supported by the research at this point, but you still believe it enough to, to say, you know what, this is something that I can kind of get behind. Oh man, I was just in, it's going to kill me because just yesterday I was thinking about something and, and now it's, I drew a complete 
complete blank on it. Uh, I mean, the geez, the, the problem is the science, the science is science. You know, it, there really isn't, and most of it is, you know, pretty valid. I really don't, I can't think of anything that, uh, yeah, geez. What were we talking about earlier that I said? Didn't I say something earlier I wish people would realize? I can't. I'm totally drawing a blank. Uh, <laughs> All good. No worries. I guess, uh, geez, this is going to kill me because I hate not having an answer. Uh, I think, um, yeah, geez. No, I, I really don't. The, the problem is this, <laughs> like, uh, the science is the science. And people say, well, I guess what I'll hate is, uh, people, people misinterpret what science can say, and 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 then when they look at bro science and say that they think okay, the, the the science must be wrong. The problem with when you're working with any scientific data is that, especially with research trials with humans, you can't follow them long, and you can't follow them 24 hours a day. So you're trying to you know get short bursts of data that, and extrapolate that out into what the long term effects would be. But oh, I, actually, I know one thing that I actually that is my my probably my biggest pet peeve is uh form, <laughs> is uh it absolutely drives me crazy that somehow uh there's been this this thing perpetuated that good form is you know really slow and then slow slow eccentric slow concentric full extension pause at the top, which every study ever done shows that that's like the worst form imaginable for increasing strength adaptation and increasing muscle growth adaptation. If you're trying to increase hypertrophy and trigger protein synthesis, it seems to be that the studies show that the, the, the negative or eccentric portion of the movement almost doesn't matter at all. And what matters on the concentric it seems to be is that you're just lifted explosively and fast. And that seems to create the greatest post-exercise uh, muscle protein synthesis stimulus. And then also you don't want to, you want to do partial reps, basically. You don't want to pause. You want to keep constant tension on the muscle. And I think if you look at this empirically, you can go to any YouTube video of any top bodybuilder, Branch Warren, Ronnie Coleman, Phil Heath, Jay Cutler, I don't know. And they're all lifting. And you go to the comments and what do you see? Bad form. Not a single rep was done this day. Terrible form. And, you know, and these guys are 300 pounds of pure muscle. And then you go to any 145-pound guy, you know, personal trainers, you know, YouTube, and he's doing all this perfect form, and all the comments are all great form, perfect form. And it's like, no, it's not. If the, if the goal of the form is to build muscle, this dude's 140 pounds. These dudes are 300 pounds. And not only that, now we have scientific evidence to, to, that shows that the, 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 the shit form of the bad form actually is the form that builds muscle. So I guess that's my biggest pet peeve. I don't know how that got perpetuated because like it's, 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 it's rampant where, it, and, and no one stops to think, you know, if, if every massive human on earth uses bad form and everyone who uses good form looks like shit, at some point maybe I need to decide what, what actually is good yeah. form. That's probably my biggest yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff is taken out of context too, right? Because a lot of the studies will say things like, um, you know, when everything is equated, so when loads equated and all that stuff, a greater range of motion is going to generate more mechanical stress, more mechanical mm -hmm. stress is going to induce greater hypertrophy and also probably greater strength gains, which is like, okay, that makes sense. But if you're doing a partial range of motion, like let's say you're doing a pin press or something like that, 
you are not going to use the same load that you would for doing a full range of motion because yeah. you're going to increase it because you've got a shorter range of motion. So I think things like also, that. Well, you have to, you have, sorry to cut you off, but you have to like really consider also that you're not contracting, uh, you're not, if, if I'm contracting just a muscle and there's a constant load apply, applied against my bicep, yeah. yes, you want to, but if we're taking something like a bench press or a shoulder press, when I'm here, the load is, so the, the torque is the radius arm times the force, where the force is the weight yeah. of the, so if I'm holding 100 pounds here, the, the torque on my front deltoid is 100 pounds times the, the, the radius of my upper arm, okay? Now when I press here, that radius has been shortened. I mean, my arm's the same length, but the, the, the horizontal distance where the load, you know, the cross product of the load is decreased. Yeah. When I get all the way to the top, the load is straight through my arm. There's almost no load on that shoulder anymore. And so that's, that's really the biggest thing, especially with free weights. Uh, and then uh, this is a pet peeve of mine that I, I've seen in a couple studies is they'll take something like a leg extension to where there's a constant, constant load across the entire range of the motion and apply the, the fact that, that, that the full range of motion increases, the, you know, places the maximal load, increases places the maximal hypertrophy adaptation, and then correlate that to a movement where you're a free weight movement where gravity is only, you know, vertical, but the, the motion of the movement is moving not just in a singular plane. Mm -hmm. And so that, and that, so like a bench press, at the top of a bench press, my arms are straight up, the weight is moving through my bones, not, not yeah. on my chest anymore. And so that's, it's, it's the lack of, uh, like thought on that that drives me crazy too yeah exactly and that, that's kind of what i was getting at right with the the decrease in transferability because i i think the example you gave was actually fantastic the uh the leg extension right because you know you'll see a guy's doing leg extension then you see someone doing squats and it's like that top kind of quarter your quads aren't really getting a whole yeah, lot yeah. of really anything you know yeah. it's more your hip extensors that are kind of doing some stuff and even then it's not really that effective so yeah like and, and anyone who disagrees with that just do you know, one and a half squats for like a set of eight and tell yeah. me your quads aren't blown up. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's a great point. Um, the, other, the other point that I uh, like kind of a pet peeve on that is of mine is people not differentiating the same thing with uh, are you training for performance or training for hypertrophy or a goal from right. the training is the same thing with the movement. And a squat's a perfect example because you have to decide, are you training to be a power lifter and move maximal weight in a squat? Because the goal of that is entirely different than if I'm trying to build quadricep muscles. If I'm trying to build my quad muscles, it's good, not going to be a powerlifting squat. It's going to be a Tom Platt style squat, you know. And in that case, I'm going to want to do not probably. I'm going to want to do partials, not do the top range of the motion. I'm going to do a different bodybuilding rep range. If I'm trying to move the maximum amount of weight in a squat, meaning all the rules and regulations of whatever powerlifting federation you're in, I actually want to use my quads as little as possible. I want to distribute that load along my quads, my my glutes, my glute, glute minimus, my lower back, my adductors, every body part I can, you know, to get the maximum amount of muscle tissue involved in the moving the squat. If I'm trying to build big quads, I want to remove all those other muscles and put the maximum load just on my quadriceps. So we're coming up to that hour mark, and so I want to be respectful of your time. Where can the listeners find you? Uh, the easiest is troponinutrition.com. Uh, it's hard, hard to spell troponin nutrition. Uh, you can just Google Justin Harris bodybuilding, Justin Harris nutrition, Justin Harris carb cycling. That's the easiest spot to find me. You can find me on Instagram at troponin underscore nutrition. You can also find me at, in a training program with Ben Pollock on myoplasmic.com. If you go and join our myoplasmic size team, you can, uh, it's $39 a month and you get, it's uh, daily adjusted training program, a fully individualized training program that we're actually following and Ben's following right now in preparation for the nationals. And so those are the two main ones, troponin nutrition and myopl myoplasmic. 
Awesome. So all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes. Definitely give him a follow. Definitely check out what he's doing. He's been doing some really, really great stuff. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for joining us on the show, man. It was a really great chat. And uh, yeah, man, it's good to have you on. Thanks. Thank you.